the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to a brand new week. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And you're listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. It's a radio program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions or life questions or what we believe as Christians and why I'll do what I can to answer anything and everything you throw our way. All you have to do is call us, dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local area here in San Antonio, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. You need only to hit the banner that says call now. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. One more time, our main number is 340-9585. Hope you had a great weekend in church. Um, hope you got to see the hand of the Lord move. Uh, we we did here. It was just a great Sunday that we had. Um, that's what God always does. You expect him to show up, and he does. Hey, just by way of scheduling, tonight, of course, is our men's and women's and youth Bible studies at 7 o'clock. Our ladies are going to have their final retreat reflection um, uh, meeting tonight, so the ladies will share what the Lord was doing. That's at 7 o'clock, and you'll be able to watch that on live stream at calvaryessay.com. Uh, Pastor Ken will be teaching the men. He's in the book of Isaiah as well. And then uh, our high schooler and junior high schoolers are also going to be here. So you can make it a family affair and have everybody here. Let me get to questions that have been sent while we wait your phone calls. Last week we had quiet phones. I hope this week that's a lot better. Uh, My first question is from our email inbox, and it's from Kirby. And she asks, will animals know... And will creation announce when Jesus is coming? Sort of like how animals seem to know of an imminent earthquake. Kirby, who knows? Who knows? I doubt it. It's going to happen so quickly in such an instant. Now, when you talk about the about Jesus coming, remember, he's not coming to earth for the rapture of the church. He's coming. He's calling us to be with him. We'll be caught up in the air to meet him. So now when Jesus comes the final time, the second time, and he sets his feet on the Mount of Olives, the earth is going to be in in such a a, a catastrophic condition that um, animals and everybody else will probably have long since been killed by the plagues and all of the other things that are going on. So um, uh, for the rapture of the church, who knows? Maybe the, the, the... trumpet call of God will be so high only dog can hear it, but more likely it'll be just sort of a nanosecond and we will be with the Lord in the air. And Kirby, uh, I can't wait for that moment. I'm telling you, things have been just watching the world that we live in and things going on. Um, man, I just hope and pray that that's today. In the meantime, we all have work to do, but uh, I think that is a uh, an important 
question. Look forward to the coming of the Lord. Uh, Annette asks, what changed the disciples to apostles and are apostles uh, like them available today? Um, the disciples, the word disciple, and it just means that the uh, their students or pupils of a teacher uh, John the Baptist had disciples, uh, the religious, the, 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 the rabbis had uh, disciples, and of course Jesus had disciples, but his 12 main disciples, uh, those who would become apostles, that happened, that, that sort of a promotion in the ranks came in the upper room on the day of Pentecost. It was when they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Now something to think about in that, the Disciples were told to go to Jerusalem and wait for a message from the Holy Spirit. Now, they didn't know what the Holy Spirit was going to do. They had no idea what the message would sound like or what it would feel like. And yet they had to go and they had to be patient and obedient. And for 10 days they waited and they waited. And, and you know, in our culture, people are so impatient. We'd wait for 10 minutes. We'd say, oh, nothing's going to happen. They waited for 10 days. Imagine how difficult that was. Imagine how their faith was tested. And yet on the 10th day, here he comes, the Holy Spirit with the sound of a mighty rushing wind and cloven tongues of fire. And that was their commissioning as apostles. Now, apostles, the word means messenger. And so it's it's not, there are still messengers in in one sense in that I'm a messenger but in, in we'd say it this way in the capital A sense there are no more apostles today Ephesians chapter 2 verse 20 the same thing is true with the prophets the apostles and the prophets are the foundation this is the Greek language in Ephesians 2 20 the the foundation which has already been laid it's in the past tense and the church is being built in the present future tense. The church is being built on that foundation already laid. So the apostles, like we see in the book of Acts, uh, those apostles do not exist today. The prophets, you know, Philip's four daughters who were prophetesses, Agabus, uh, all of the writers of the New Testament, those prophets laid the foundation of the church with Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. And it was at that time they were not only commissioned, but then as the word of God started to form, started to develop, as those letters that we know now as our New Testament were circulated, um, including the gospel accounts of Jesus' ministry, uh, once those were circulated, there's, that foundation had already been laid. So now we have the apostles' doctrine complete. Remember in Acts chapter 2, they clung to the early church did to the apostles' doctrine, among other things. Well, the doctrine they clung to, we call our Bibles. Good question. Thank you, Annette, very, very much. Here is a question from our mobile app, this one from Nacho. He says, in 1 Corinthians 11.10, where angels created for God as women are for men, in context to the passage since Lucifer tried to um, elevate himself over God, did God place a sign of authority over women because of the curses, a sign also to the angels? No, not true. I don't think so. I think that's getting just a little bit too um, mystical. Um, the, the angels were created as God's servants. They had a job. Uh, they were created to worship God. And, and when Lucifer fell, he took a third of the angels with him. Uh, they made a one-time forever choice. And um, so the good angels outnumbered the bad angels two to one. But at the same time, um, that God put women under men uh, in terms of church and home, only two places that, that really belong to God, um, that was simply a result of the curse. Uh, rather than people walking together in harmony, people being full of wisdom, uh, suddenly there would be animosity, there would be tension. And um, God knew, he said in Genesis chapter 4 to, to, um, to Eve, or Genesis chapter 3 rather, to Eve, 
that uh, as a result of the sin, the result of the fall, your desire will be to rule over your husband, but he will rule over you. And um, that's sort of when that tension began, when independence from one another began. Uh, and the the idea in Corinth, remember, Nacho, that was a church completely crazy out of control. And so he was putting, Paul was trying to establish, reestablish some control in that church. We know the Apostle Paul was there for 18 months, um, and then he would get these letters that crazy things were happening, and so he was just restoring order. It's very, very, very important. 340-9585, we've got a call from Houston, Lauren on line one. Lauren, thanks for calling, you're on the air. Hey, Pastor Ron. So I've been having a fairly lengthy debate with uh, a couple of my friends. one of them claims to be, a, they both claim to be Christians, but one of them claims to be a Christian and also claims to be gay, which obviously we know that can't be. But the other one, um, the one that's gay is thinking about getting married to her significant other, and the other friend was asking my opinion as to whether or not she should go to the wedding. I told her that I wouldn't go, but um, now she's wanting scripture based on everything that I've said. And I've been looking up scripture, and one of the verses that I was reading was 1 Corinthians uh, 5.9 or 5.11, where it talks about not even eating with those people. And I was wondering how I could explain that to her, because I know she's going to get very uh, defensive and say, well, it says we should just totally cut them off. Yeah, you know, Lauren, one of the problems that we have understanding, when we say, well, where's the scripture that says that um, the, the, the ancient world was so different than ours. Now, sin still abounded in, in the ancient world, and, and certainly, especially in Corinth, homosexuality was even a bigger issue uh, there than it is in, in our culture. Um, but, but God never had to talk to his people about uh, same-sex relationships. He never had to talk to his people about those things. So he didn't. So what we have to do, finding... Uh, passages of scripture to, 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 to lead us and guide us is look for principles. And the, the passage that you mentioned with such a person don't even eat was somebody who claims to be a Christian but is living a decidedly anti-Christian life um, or, or to go to him in love or to try to correct them. But if they won't listen to the correction, then we're to have nothing to do with them. And the idea is to, to, to make sure they understand that the, the, the real church, the true church of Jesus Christ, uh, cannot tolerate sexual immorality that is unrepentant. You know, everybody falls and, and uh, um, we, we, we sin. However, when a real Christian sins, it tears our heart apart. We hate it. Paul says, what I want to do, I can't do. What I don't want to do, that's what I find myself doing. And his response is, oh, wretched man that I am, who can deliver me from this body of death? So to, the, the, the two issues that you brought up, somebody who is a practicing homosexual uh, is not a Christian, period. People who live like this, Galatians 5, 1 Corinthians 6, uh, both say people who live like this, and there's other sins there listed as a, as a continuing lifestyle of sin. Those people will not inherit the kingdom of God. So um, um, there are people, remember we live in a fallen world, there are people who are, who are attracted to the same sex, um, um, but, but what they have to do it's what we would tell a single person to do. Uh, you've got to control your body. You've got to say no to your flesh in order to please the Lord. And I, I think that's the one thing that is the most damaging about the culture that we live in, Lauren. I don't think that people expect to say no. I think we expect, okay, God loves me so I can do what I want because God wants me to be happy. That's not the case. With regard to the other issue, and I think this is a, a real sensitive issue, um, when you're invited as a Christian to a celebration of sin, I just don't see how a Christian can participate. Um, you know, you can say, well, they know where I stand. And I've had this question a dozen times on the radio program over the years. Uh, but, well, they know where I stand, but I'm their friend and I want to show them I love them. And, and I want to be available to them if they ever want to come and talk about things. But the way to really, really love them is to stand for what's righteous. And if you can't, uh, celebrate the marriage because it's an ungodly marriage, then you shouldn't be there. And by being there, just because it's a celebration 
um, you're you're sending such a mixed signal, and you you find yourself standing in compromise. So uh, I think Lauren, what we need to do is be willing. Our feelings are going to get hurt by the people that don't love us anymore, but we got to be willing to take a stand for what's right. And we do that because we love Jesus even more than we love our friends. So I think that the the entirety of Scripture tells us about how to deal with certain situations in a modern culture. But uh, there was no such thing as a gay wedding in, in the time that the book was written, so it wouldn't have been addressed. Does that help? It does a little bit, but the I know the rebuttal that that will happen when I talk to her about this is she'll say, but God calls us to love everyone. So not hanging out with her at all. Cause what I'm trying to get at is the other friend has told her, if you can't support me on this, I'm going to cut you out of my life, which I have no issues with. Cause it's, it's like what's right is right. What's wrong is wrong. But she says that that's not how Christ would want us to be. Well, but, but, it, but, but see, she's the one who's withholding love because of what you believe. She's the one who's threatening to withhold love. And, and Lauren, I, I agree. We have to love people, but loving them is not accepting that which is harmful to them. Yes, everybody who has children, yeah, everybody who has children knows that you can't let your children do that which is going to cause them harm. And, and that's the way God is with his children. So if somebody, if, if somebody says, no, Christ would want us to be loving, the loving thing is to tell them what's right and what's wrong and then force them to make a choice. So I wouldn't worry so much about the rebuttal. I would explain to them what love is. Love isn't accepting a, 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 a sinful lifestyle that will eventually result in you being sent to hell. And the people that ask those questions, they know nothing of our Bible. They don't know anything at all uh, about it. What they do is they, they know what feels loving and what feels accepting. And the world that we live in has so misidentified and misapplied what love really is that um, the, the, the world doesn't know what love is. Love is telling people the truth and being willing to risk even a friendship to do it. So if I had somebody say, well, if you don't come, if you can't support me, I'm going to cut you out of my life, I would say, well, that will break my heart. But I love you. I'll never cut you out of my life. And I will keep praying for you that you will open your heart to the Lord. Okay. Okay? Thank you, Lord. Pray for your friends. Okay, bye-bye. Yeah. 340-9585, Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Uh, Gloria just called into the station and she said, I called last week about a situation at work. I'm talking to my supervisor today. If you could, please pray for me. Gloria, I remember your call and I will be praying and now so will a whole bunch of other people. Jesus, give Gloria the wisdom and the commitment and the strength and the faith to rightly represent you in this meeting. Amen. Thank you, Gloria, for giving us a chance to pray. You might give us a call and let us know how it went tomorrow. Remember, the Lord is with you regardless of the outcome. Uh, Jack writes in and he says, Pastor, and I believe the signed gifts are for today. I think you disagree. I've seen miracles in my church all the time, and I know those signed gifts still exist. Jack, I want you to think about what you just said. And you're right, I do disagree that the signed gifts... I do disagree that the sign gifts are for today. However, God still does miraculous things. And we've had a chance to see a few miracles. But think about what you just wrote. You've seen miracles in your church all the time. By definition, a miracle can't happen all the time. If if that were the case, you'd say, I've seen the ordinary in my church all the time. Miracles are God imposing himself on the world that we live in. So miracles don't happen all the time. I think what you see is a lot of people jumping and shaking and speaking in tongues. But those aren't miracles. Slapping people on the forehead and having them fall down. Jack, those aren't miracles. The sign gifts, the gift of tongues as it appeared in the uh, book of Acts, in in the entrance of um, the Holy Spirit to the world, that's never going to happen again. Uh, Sure, the gift of tongues, it's different. It's not a sign gift. The gift of tongues is a very personal uh, gift that that still is in operation, but not like in the book of Acts in chapter 2. There's no cloven tongues of fire. There's no sound of a mighty rushing wind. 
So those sign gifts are not for today. The miracles that you read of the apostles doing in the book of Acts and throughout their ministries, um, those are miracles that were done by the apostles. If you read carefully, Jack, you're going to see that those are miracles that weren't done by everybody and miracles weren't being done routinely in the church. They were signs that validated the calling of an apostle. If uh, somebody, and there were lots of people in the early church claimed to be apostles, just like now, but their ministries were absent power. So what we see in our church isn't miracles. We wouldn't recognize a miracle, Jack, if it bit us in the nose. Real miracles are blind people seeing, dead people being raised, lame people able to walk, shriveled hands being restored before our eyes. Those are the kind of miracles. Now, I also want to say, Jack, there are some places in the world where those kind of miracles still occur. Not regularly, not like on a daily basis. Nobody schedules miracle services. But especially in the Middle East, in Africa, and in in other countries where you're not free to proclaim the name of Jesus, where converting to Christianity is a death sentence. People need to see the proof of the message, and God graciously gives it to them. In our country, we don't need any more signs. We've got his word. We've got more knowledge about Jesus than we know what to do with. So the sign gifts are designed to point to Jesus. When a bunch of Christians, like the church that, that you're in, I don't know what church that is, so please, Jack, this isn't personal. But the sign gifts pointed to Jesus. In your church, the phony miracles that are being done are pointing to some celebrity pastors, pointing to the next offering that's coming around. I think, Jack, you know the truth. Read 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, and you'll see how the gifts of the Spirit are supposed to operate in the church. And if you understand that God can't contradict himself, he can't say one thing in the Bible and then tell your church that something else is okay, if you understand that, then you'll understand what I'm saying. The other thing that will happen is you will grow a much deeper appreciation of who the real Jesus is. He's not a goosebump Jesus, Jack. He's a Jesus who's promised to never leave you or forsake you. He's the Jesus who will be with you when you're terrified. He's the Jesus that when you get terrible news from a doctor, he'll wrap his arms around you and provide a peace that passes understanding. That's the real Jesus. And the real Jesus is so much better than the counterfeit Jesus that is on display for our entertainment in so many churches. So, Jack, I respectfully disagree. Don't get ripped off. Read your Bible. Let's go to uh, Stephanie calling from San Antonio on line one. Stephanie, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi. Um, I had a question with regard to uh, my church and its music. Uh, a couple months ago, I think it's been a couple months ago, you had kind of enlightened me on Bethel Church mm-hmm. uh, and their music in Redding, California. And as I continue to do research and kind of just continually be in his word, I'm somewhat getting pulled away from my church, but I've been with that church over 15 years. So I don't want to, you know, make any rash decisions, but I'm just finding some of the music even some of the secular every now and then that they've brought into worship is something I haven't agreed with. Um, even like a song with Lauren Daigle, I mean, things that I just, I don't know if that's really a big enough reason to consider leaving a church, but there's just been these small things or occurrences that have happened that are making me question their foundation. Yeah, yeah tough, tough, tough situation, Stephanie. Yeah, here, here's what I would suggest that you do. Uh, you've been there for a very, very long time. So I would ask your pastor, you know, why are you bringing in uh, Jesus culture, the the Bethel music? Um, If you look at the lyrics, so many of the lyrics are 
are inconsistent with our scriptures. And it's important if we're going to worship God, we've got to worship him on our terms. Um, uh, I would be more concerned. Uh, music is uh, personal taste, but I would be more concerned if some of the Bethel culture is getting into the word. Uh, probably, and again, I don't know what church and don't need to know you're talking about, but uh, probably there's a whole bunch of things uh, that are creeping in culturally wise to to your church that that are causing you some trouble. It's not just the music, but um, there's just nothing about the ministry in Reading at Bethel Church or anything that comes out of that ministry that I can recommend. It's it's not biblical. It's ungodly. Um, you know, um, I get a lot of questions, phone calls about Lauren Daigle. Uh, I'm pretty sure the girl's a Christian, but she's certainly not sending for Jesus. Why would we want to play that? in our sacred time of worship. And Stephanie, if you'll kind of hang over the break and listen to the radio, I'll, I'll approach this a little bit more on the other side of the break. We have 30 minutes left on the Monday show, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. We'll be back in two minutes. Back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of our program. We've got 30 minutes to take your phone calls and questions at 340-9585. Stephanie, I want to continue a couple of more points because this is, is, I think, an important issue, and certainly it's important to you. You took the time to call, and uh, I love that you were carefully considering whether or not to leave the church. First, let me explain. Worship is not designed, and this is my biggest problem. For, for the, the lyrics are the biggest problem. So the, the next biggest problem with, with the, the music that's coming out of Bethel and a lot of the music that, that people are, are, are now playing in churches is that it's only design, it's only purpose to get us to be emotional, get our arms in the air, get us swaying back and forth. Uh, and while that's not wrong, that's not what worship is. Worship is a sacrifice of praise. And that means the lyrics that are coming from our lips, you know, the, most of the contemporary Christian uh, worship um, um, plans are, are sing-alongs, uh, I don't want my worship team on stage performing. I want them leading the rest of us into worship. And and if the, the lyric doesn't make sense, if the lyric is inconsistent with what the Word teaches, then it ceases to be worship. And if we play songs that are designed only to give us goosebumps, well, then we miss the whole point of worship. We ought, every one of us, to be able to worship uh equally well to a song we love and a song we hate. Honestly, we look at some songs and, oh, I don't like that song. But if our heart is right, if we're willing to make that sacrifice of praise, then uh, we ought to be able to worship no matter what. A song with inconsistent lyrics, a song that is designed to um, pique our emotion, uh, that's not worship, that's performance. Um, I, I I don't like uh, the trend of turning down the lights and having light effects and smoke and all the other things on stage. I don't like it when musicians are drawing attention to themselves. Worship is all of our attention being drawn only to Jesus. Now, the second thing, and this is the personal thing for you, Stephanie, um, leaving a church um, should only be something we do um, when we bathed with prayer. Uh, if your pastor's not teaching false doctrine, if your um, your pastor's not doing phony miracles, uh, if you feel like you've been getting fed, then maybe the music is something you put up with. Um, if you're serving your church, if you're able to use your gifts, well, then the music is something that you put up with. But do your pastor a favor and at least let him hear your heart and hear where you're coming from. 
And if he defends Bethel Church and, and the Jesus culture music, uh, then probably you're on your way out, as you indicated. Um, if th- that culture is going to affect um, other things that are going on in the church. And you want to always protect. I know it's hard to leave friends, uh, but at the same time, church uh, isn't to, to gain friends. We'll get friends. We'll make great friends. But that's not why we stay. We stay because we're being fed. We stay because the Bible's being taught faithfully. We stay because we get to use our gifts to minister to others. Uh, if those things aren't happening, Stephanie, then perhaps it's time to leave. I'll be praying for you. I'd like you to keep us posted, Stephanie. Thank you very, very much. Here is a question from Crystal. When pastors talk about God's rest, what does that mean for regular people? Crystal, thanks for asking the question that way. Um, You know, sometimes we as pastors, um, you know, we forget that we speak Christianese too, and regular people are going, what does that mean? What does that mean? That's one of the reasons I try uh, to avoid using Christian cliches, I try to avoid speaking in generalities. I want the people who listen to me teach the Bible to be able to understand <clears throat> excuse me, how they can use what I taught them when they go home. Now, God's rest. Um, I've been talking about that a lot because on Friday nights, uh, we've been in Hebrews chapter 3 and chapter 4, and that's the subject of the chapters, God's rest. What does it mean? It means that we stop striving in our own strength to please God. We stop trying to make God love us more. Instead, we rest in the fact that he already loves us, that he's already crazy about us. We don't keep rules so God's happy with us. We keep rules because he all, we know he already is. And that's God's rest. It's it's not being legalistic. It's it's just resting in the finished work of Christ. You know, Chris, I don't know how long you've been listening to the program, but uh, we get calls about, well, what do I have to do if 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 I mess up, or what if I keep sinning? Um, how can I make God pleased with me? Those kind of questions. Um, rest requires faith. In fact, the context of the Hebrews three and four passages. Uh, the, the the Israelites in the Exodus wilderness, none of them obtained the promises of God because they didn't combine the promises with faith. Well, the same thing is true in our daily walk with Jesus um, um, every 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 minute of every day. Um, if if I don't believe the promises God has given me, then I'm never going to benefit from them. God says, I'm more than a conqueror through him who loved us. Well, if I don't really believe that, then I'm going to still start trying or keep trying to fight my own battles. Next to Sunday here at Calvary Chapel, we're in what I call the don't worry section. And so many Christians are so fearful. So many Christians worry. I, I tell our church all the time, some of you guys have master's degrees in, in worry. Um, if you find yourself worried all the time, you're not resting. Those are the things that are meant by entering God's rest. And believe me, God wants us to rest. That doesn't mean we sit back and we do nothing. It just means that everything we do for him, we do by virtue of using the power of the Holy Spirit that he's provided for us. So, Crystal, I hope that's plain enough for you. I will do my best not to talk in generalities or in cliches. Uh, Joel wants to ask our tongues for today. Uh, yes, but not the Acts chapter 2 kind of tongues. I sort of addressed this, Joel, the question at the top of the program. Um, uh, I have the gift of tongues. First Corinthians chapter 12 and 14 tells us not only what the gift is, uh, how we're to use it, but how we're to use it in a corporate setting as well. Um, tongues are a vertical gift. It's a gift given by God to enhance, uh, to make more intimate our, our, our prayer relationship with Jesus. But it's not to be done the way that 
Uh, you see it done in so many churches where you walk in and everybody's just speaking in tongues at the same time. That is not the Holy Spirit. There has to be decency and order. And 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14 gives us not only what the gift is and, and what it's for, but how it's to be used in our lives. Now, let me say this. Because we don't need sign gifts. The Acts chapter 2 gift is done. That's a one time only. That was the Holy Spirit's grand entrance to earth. But the gift of tongues, personally, Joel, is a wonderful gift, a beautiful gift. There are times when you don't know what to pray for. There are times when, uh, and I'll just speak for me, you know, please, Lord, we need help, Lord. Lord, protect her, protect him, those kind of things. And you don't know what to pray. And so I'll pray in my prayer language. And I know those prayers are getting right to the throne of God because they're prayers initiated by the Spirit of God. We don't lose control. You can stop and start as you want. But it's a great gift. And it requires faith because, frankly, to a lot of us, it doesn't make sense. So yes, tongues are for today. Paul said, I would that you all, brothers, spoke in tongues more than I do. Why would he say that if it wasn't a good gift? And by the way, Joel, every gift God gives is not just good. It's a glorious gift. So this is a gift I think God would give to everybody. Uh, Not everybody will receive it because it doesn't make sense. But if you'll combine the promise with faith, God will give you the gift of tongues. Here's a question from Maria. She says, did Mary ever sin or was she perfect like Jesus? Uh, Maria, out of Mary's own lips, in her Magnificat, she calls Jesus her Savior, not her Son. She calls him her Savior. Now, if she was perfect, if she was without sin, then she wouldn't need a Savior. In fact, she could be a Savior. And of course, in the Catholic Church, there's a large, large swath of the Catholic Church that believes that Mary is and practices, in fact, that she is a co-redemptrix. But that's not true. Mary was a sinner. How do we know that? Well, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's Romans 3. All means all. There is none righteous, not even one. That's Romans again. But Mary herself said, he is my savior. So yes, Mary sinned. She was not perfect. And she doesn't address Jesus in heaven as her son. She addresses him as her Lord and savior. 340-9585, Jessica asks, I know some people always seem to get prayers answered, while I most often do not. Why is it like that? Jessica had a similar question last week. Sometimes it seems, when you're in one of those dry spells, it seems like everybody else's prayers are being answered. Two things. One, God is answering your prayers. He's just not necessarily answering them the way you want him to or expect him to. I think one of the things, Jessica, that keeps our prayers from being answered is that we don't pray like Jesus did. Nevertheless, Father, thy will, not my will be done. Now, Paul tells us that it's perfectly fine to to make our request known to God. But here's the caveat, Jessica. We've got to do so with thanksgiving, with a grateful heart. So try praying like this. Jesus, you know what I need or you know what I want. And I'm asking you to do this for me, but thy will, not my will, be done. And Jessica, I take great comfort in knowing that there's a whole bunch of my prayers that God doesn't answer because answering them wouldn't be the best for me. And when you get to that point, then you're going to really start getting some prayers answered. I would also suggest, Jessica, not knowing you, I would suggest that you really examine your heart. Make sure there's no sin in your life, unconfessed sin. Make sure that your heart, your motives are right. James says we have not because we ask not. That's not your problem. Or because we ask amiss. Or the NIV says we ask with the wrong motives. 
if you're praying, you're giving Jesus your shopping list, well, that's not intimate prayer. It's sort of treating Jesus like an errand boy. Lord, do this for me, do that for me. So check your heart, make sure there's no unconfessed willful sin in your life. And then make sure that your motives are right. And if your motives are right, Jessica, you're going to be able to say, Nevertheless, thy will, O God, and not mine be done. By the way, the people who are always saying God's answering their prayers, they're getting the same thing you are. God answers my prayers um, three ways. Yes, no, or not now. And i got to be okay with whatever the answer is, knowing that He loves me and He has only my best interests at heart. If we can remember that, then not getting specific prayers answered won't be such a stumbling block. Thank you, Jessica. Here is a question from Dean. Dean, this question pushes my hot button a little bit. He says, why aren't more Christians getting involved in the battle against climate change? If something isn't done to improve things, our children will not have a future. Dean, I'm going to start off by asking you to read Psalm 46. Do you really think, as a, as a Christian, Dean, do you really think God's not in control of this earth? Do you really think that anything mankind can do can keep God's plan from unfolding before our eyes? There was a book called uh, by a man named Paul Ehrlich. When I was growing up, and the name escapes me now, but it's it's a, a best-selling work that he had when I was growing up, so it was 200 years ago. But, um, um, and, and, and it was all doom and gloom. The, the, the environment is going to be wiped out, and the earth is going to be destroyed. Um, population bomb, he said. My producer told me, thank you. And um, um, here we are. Fifty years later, we're still here. Um, our children have been told in public schools that um, the earth would be devastated, and here we are. Uh, we are brainwashing our children. Some of us as adults are being brainwashed by what we see on the, on the media. Do you really believe, Dean, that this earth isn't going to be here if Jesus comes back for us? Let me tell you something else, Dean. We're going to be on this earth, this very planet, for a thousand years during the reign of Jesus Christ. And this climate change lunacy, it's... its a phobia that people have. Uh, it, it's just people who don't know Jesus. It's people that don't trust him, don't believe him, don't take him at his word. So read Psalm 46. Tomorrow night, Dean, I'm going to be doing, not tomorrow night, I'm sorry, on Wednesday night, I'm going to be doing a Bible study about what the earth is going to look like during the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. So let me ask you a question, Dean, and you can take this personally, and this is something you can ask others. I would say, why aren't more Christians getting involved in the battle against sin? Or why aren't more Christians getting involved in doing the will of God in their lives? How little faith we have to believe that God isn't the one who's keeping things together, keeping things under control. Jesus, we're told in Colossians, holds all things together. I think he's doing a pretty good job. So find other things to be worried about, to be fearful of. My study yesterday, Dean, um, 
Jesus was telling his disciples they're going to go out and they're going to be persecuted. He's trying to prepare them for life after his death and resurrection. And he says, don't fear that which can kill the body, but fear the one that can kill the body and throw the soul into hell. That's where our focus needs to be. And every minute that you're obsessing about climate change is a minute you could be with Jesus. Should we be good stewards of our planet? Of course we should. But to be obsessed by this constant brainwashing when our Bible is filled with promises to the contrary, I think it demonstrates the real lack of faith that we have in our church culture. 340-9585, Amanda says, I'm a Christian. I don't understand if we are sinners or saints. Why does it seem pastors talk about sin so much if we are saints? Uh, Amanda, the reason that we talk about sin so much is because it's it's from cover to cover in the Bible. Uh, we are both sinners and saints. Let me explain. Um, in these earthly bodies... Um, with fallen natures, we sin. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's actually in the continuous present tense in Greek. So it's for all are sinning continually and are continually falling short of the glory of God continually. So sin is an issue in the world. All you have to do is look around. As a Christian, I'm a forgiven sinner and that entitles me to be called a saint. Positionally, I'm perfect. Jesus looks at me from heaven and goes, oh, can't be any better. But here on earth, practically, we all still struggle with stuff. So I am a saint who sins, or I can say I'm a sinner who's been washed by the blood of Jesus and converted into being a saint. But we have to talk about sin, Amanda, because you cannot read your Bibles without talking about the importance of being right with God, having fellowship with God. That's really, really important. So you're a sinner, and you're a saint, and there shouldn't be any tension between those two things. In fact, Amanda, one more thing. I talk about sin. Uh, we teach the Bible verse by verse, so when Bible talks about sin, I talk about it. But it's because I want to show you the remedy for sin. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and purify you from all unrighteousness. And, and no matter what you've done, by genuinely repenting, your fellowship with God is instantly and completely reestablished. So I hope that helps you. Here's an anonymous question. We're inside four minutes, so no time for any phone calls. Anonymous says, I'm a new believer who doesn't understand how we can depend on the Bible since it was written so long ago. Well, Anonymous, you're just like I was 28 years ago. I remember Paula over and over. The Bible says, the Bible says, and I would say to her, now this is before I'm saved. I would say to her, Paula, the Bible is just a book written by men. Because I didn't understand how God could write a Bible. I just discounted it altogether. Now, I discounted it because I knew that it would talk about righteousness and holiness, and I wanted to live in sin. I wanted to be okay doing what I wanted to do. So here's what I'm going to challenge you to do. You need to find out if the Bible is really God's Word. It was written a long time ago, Old Testament and New Testament, thousands and thousands of years ago. However, God doesn't change. He was there at the beginning, he'll be there at the end, and he's perfect and he doesn't change. It's called the immutability of Christ. When people say, well, the Bible's old-fashioned, I say, it's okay, because God's old. He never changes. But Anonymous, as a new believer, I was so curious I had question after question, and every time I'd ask a Christian question, now, I remember thinking every Christian was an expert on these things. 
I didn't know anything, but everybody knew more than me. And every time I'd ask a question, they would start their answer with, the Bible says. And I remember the wrestling match I had with the Lord. I said, you know, I have to find out if, if the answer to every question is, the Bible says, how do I know if I can trust the Bible? And the Lord challenged me as a brand new believer to find out for myself. That's what I'm going to challenge you to do. You Don't listen to me. Don't listen to anybody else. But you sit down with your Bible. Go get all of the re- reference material you, you want on how the Bible was, was put together and, and why we can trust it, um, the documentation it came from, the evidence we have, and just wrestle with it. Because the one question you're going to have to answer if your life with Christ is going to be fruitful, if you're going to continue with Christ is can you count on this book? Because if this book is just a book written by men, then we're all lost. We have no way of determining right and wrong. We're on our own. And a God that would leave us on, all on our own is not God at all. But if you find out as I did, and I'll tell you, Anonymous, this took me almost three months um, before I was convinced. I'd get my hands on and anything and everything I could read I would chase rabbit trails. I would, questions come up. There were times I thought I found contradictions. I would say, oh, well, it's not a contradiction. And finally, after about three months of wrestling with this one issue, I remember I was at the Claremont School of Theology. It's a horrible library, but, but it was a great place for me. And I remember leaning back in my chair, and it was almost like Jesus was sitting there. He said, okay, you convinced? And I was really convinced, and my life has never been the same. Hope that helps, Anonymous. Please do it. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. Uh, remember, tonight at 7 o'clock, our men's, women's, and youth Bible studies, ladies' retreat reflection. Come and join us. See you tomorrow. Bye-bye. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.